For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 57 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Our wrap-up of the 2021 AASLD meeting starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Looking at the early phase trials that show early evidence of efficacy was somewhat surreal for me when I got to pivotal studies. I chose to present the top line data for the Alpine trial, Falcon 1 and 2, the tandem study, because for all practical purposes, we should have seen a signal. And it was somewhat surreal that they failed on the primary outcome of how we've defined this disease. Yet, so many other surrogate markers of disease activity dropped across all these trials that, quote, failed. Going back to some of these drugs like Aldafermid or I did the Jamie Bosch article yesterday, there was 2,000 patients in that. Those drugs failed. Looking back to see whether or not did they fail or were they enriched with the wrong type of people who were going to respond more to diets and whether or not looking retrospectively again, mining the data that we've got to see whether or not these drugs work well in certain individuals. Is that where the strength lies retrospectively going forward. The drug that meets an approvable endpoint with a good safety profile, then that's really going to provide a massive impetus to all of the other things that we talked about. And although the science, particularly that Neil Henderson talked about, is exciting, the pace of the development in that will probably not get us there next year. Roger, what I think is going to prevail here is really the momentum we have between clinical scientists, basic scientists, patient representatives, advocacy, the regulators at our meetings. They want to know what we think, what we're working on. So everybody is at the table and ready to get this to a finish for the best of our patients. The common theme of this entire last 75 minutes has been data. Everything we're talking about actually is about an improvement to gather and process data and make sense out of it. If you didn't have the data collection tools that we have and the data modeling capabilities that have been rendered so inexpensive, none of this would happen. But if you think about it, the way we're talking about non-invasive testing, genomic, precision medicine, all that winds up being about improving data capabilities. As this groundswell builds about the variability that exists with biopsy and concomitantly and in parallel is building for some of these NITs to show the data with NITs, show the issue with histopathology, ordinal scale, semi-quantitative interpretation, and then see if we can reach a common ground on what it takes to achieve replacement of histology with an NIT or you know, conditional approval. Because I think we've got the outcome piece in the works. It's just that initial piece that we need a little bit more data on. weekend, thousands of stakeholders from across the global hepatology community convened virtually for the Digital Liver Meeting 2021, a four-day event with well over 100 sessions on a broad range of liver-related topics. Join hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders, Dr. Stephen Harrison, Manal Abdelmalik, Jörn Schottenberg, and Ian Rowe, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they discuss major themes and takeaways from the 2021 Digital Liver Meeting, today on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. So... 
This is the third time that we are doing an episode in the last 48 hours. Between schedule and a couple of unexpected events at the end of time, we're also going into this episode with no notes for me about what we're going to talk about. I don't think it's going to hinder the podcast. However, we've all just been through a fantastic meeting. Panelists and online comments and the people with whom I randomly correspond or speak by phone all emerged from this week really energized, more energized than from any of the other virtual meetings over the last two years, and even from a lot of the online events. Before I mention our other guests, one opinion leader we're fortunate to have with us today is Manal Abdelmalik, who I'm going to do my best to make blush. She had the unique task last night of assembling all the various posters, presentations, and sessions having to do with fatty liver in this meeting, over 475 of them. I forget the count, Manal. You can give it just a little bit if you want to, but it's a lot. To create a single 30-minute presentation which made sense of it all and hit the high points, which I described on our podcast recording last night as the oratorical equivalent of drinking out of a fire hose. So, Manal, first, thanks for being here today, and congrats on a really great summary talk. How are you the day after? more relaxed. It was like building up to literally a colossal talk and you're so energized that after that I feel completely deflated. Now I'm gearing up towards the next uh, initiative I have to accomplish. But it was probably one of the most difficult talks for me to give in 30 minutes, only because I'm not presenting my own data. I'm presenting the work of others. Um, And there was such a breadth and depth of amazing science at this year's liver meeting that the hardest part for me to give that talk was figuring out what abstracts and what science to present in 30 minutes. We're going to ask you about that in a little bit, but thank you. And then second, we have Louise with us, who it's great to see when it's not like midnight in the UK. I just feel a lot less guilty about having you with us today. Next, in the tradition of what we've done with these end of conference events, always we've decided to invite our European colleagues to join us because it's always so much more sane of an hour for them. So today we have Jorn Schottenberg and Ian Rowe with us. Jorn, how are you doing this evening? Roger, I'm fine. Uh, Full at the meeting over the last days. Uh, I thought Manel did a fantastic job. Congrats uh, on summarizing everything. I actually watched the rewind too, and I saw her smile at the end when the video stopped, so I knew she she must have felt good about it too. It was a Great summary, Manel. No pressure to have to do 30 minutes live at the end of all that using your own home technology, which means you can't really trust your internet. Well, you know, what was amazing is is at the very beginning, I found it hard to advance my slides and it dawned on me the kids were streaming movies upstairs (laughs) and I probably was straining my internet. I'm sure that's right. That's funny. Okay, and then Ian Rowe. Ian, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Roger. Pleasure to be here. For the second episode in a row, those of you who were with us last night, Stephen's having technical problems getting into this, so we're going to start without him, and he'll join us when he can catch up, which hopefully will be in a minute or two. So this is where, and it's too bad Stephen isn't here at this moment, because my icebreaker question is actually a bit of a tribute to Stephen, except the one to Manal, which is actually a tribute to Manal. So here, here's the one for the rest of you. There are two really compelling talks I had in my life that got me involved in fatty liver disease, and Manal was the second, as she knows. Stephen was the first. And one of the things that Stephen said during his was that his mission in doing all this was, and I'm quoting now, to put a big fat dent in fatty liver disease. So the question I want to ask the rest of you, and Manal, I'm going to ask you this too, but as part of a broader question or a different question, is, and Stephen's here. Hey, I'm here. Sorry, guys. Just had some clinical things going on. Stephen, your timing is off by a minute and a half. Here's today's icebreaker. I was saying that I got involved in NASH in the first place as much as anything else because of a conversation I had with you and one with Manal. And for the icebreaker, when we first talked to you, you told me your mission was to put a big fat dent in fatty liver disease. I want everybody except Manal, who will tell us that in the context of a broader question. Where do you think the biggest dent got hit on fatty liver disease this week? Brave one, go first. I actually think it's probably the genomics sessions, although 
I didn't cover any of those. There were quite a few interesting things from what I could see looking at phenotyping the people who aren't going to respond to some of the drugs, different diets, things like that. And I think the more we drive down into that precision medicine, the more we get into areas that could really change the landscape. Did these drugs fail? Or if we looked at some of those studies that failed with new techniques that we've got, could we pick out the patients and therefore were the drugs more successful in the patients from the right phenotypes? That that would be the sort of thing that I took from this meeting that I hadn't seen previously. It's a great answer, Louise. Thanks. Okay, now whoever goes next can't repeat that. Right, I'll go next. So for me, the big dent came, it really comes in from the fact that we're talking with different physicians beyond hepatologists to how to identify these patients, to make a difference for these patients, to actually find these patients. Albeit no approved therapy is available today yet. We're discussing these strategies, how to identify them in different settings, in different healthcare systems. And this is a big step towards the realization that the disease is important. It's real. It's it's critical for patients. There was a special price given to Dana Cryer for her advocacy. This is really the momentum that we've reached more people than just the experts with this critical disease. Thanks, Jorn. We're reserving an offer list, so Ian and Stephen, go ahead. Well, I'm going to go next. I'm ready to follow on from what Jorn said, and, and that is that I, I thought that this was a meeting that was a bit about research, but a lot of it was about practice and about how we might implement treatments that are not drug treatments now for the benefit of patients. So there was a real focus that came through the meeting on diet and exercise interventions. That's to the benefit of you know our patients today. It reflects a wider recognition that we need to do something now and we can't afford to wait for drugs that will be coming down the line. Okay, thanks Ian. That's great. Stephen? As I reflected on the meeting and reflected on, first of all, all the great talks that were given and many of those by you guys. And by the way, before I go on, I'll say great job, Manal, on your wrap-up. I thought that was very well done. And trying to go through his 475 different posters and whittle down what was the important, most important thing to drive home was very, very challenging. So congratulations on that and your two children for their help. But I think for me, the big fat dent really... I I see the tide turning on some of our non-invasive tests. And in 2022, we will have some significant data that will hopefully support the initial data that's come out on some of these NITs, particularly as it pertains to the context of use of diagnosing the at-risk NASH patient and monitoring efficacy of drug. Still think we got a ways to go on outcomes, which ultimately is the holy grail. But the groundwork has been laid for us to mine that data. And we'll hear that in 2022. And I believe that groundswell has begun at AASLD 2021. There's a lot of things I could say that left a dent to me that, in my mind, was the biggest dent. Thank you, Stephen. So I'm going to steal about half of Louise's and half of yours. And I'm going to say that the big dent that I felt was an increasing acceptance of the complexity of the disease. You know, I, I talk about this from time to time, but in 1969, Nixon declared war on cancers if there was a single thing called cancer. And and one of the things that struck me in NASHTAG 2019 when I first came here was the degree to which people were talking about as if there was a thing called NASH. And what these discussions have been about in a whole bunch of directions is, A, understanding far more richly what the disease is, and then how it might differ from patient to patient and how to understand that and how to treat it. All that richness, Stephen, has the effect of walking us away from biopsy because biopsy is a really blunt instrument and away from looking for one drug that's the holy grail because, A, that hasn't worked for us so far, but B, the more we know about the disease, the more we know that that's probably not the right thing to do. So I just thought the whole thing got a lot richer. Just one caveat. Biopsy is actually a very sharp instrument, but the results are very blunt. (laughs) 
Can we call it a sharp instrument and a blunt analytical tool? Will that cover the landscape? Very good, Stephen. So now I have two questions for you. The first one is, and I'm not the only one who's asked this, how many med school uh, acceptances did your kids get last night and how many came with scholarships? <laughs> we haven't applied yet. Um, and I don't know. We'll hope the scholarships will come in later. In Division One <laughs> athletics, a 14-year-old kid with talent can get a scholarship offer simply based on that. And I think if there's such a thing in med school, your, your kids certainly put themselves right at the front of the pack last night. It wasn't a hard task. It was highlight every time you see naffled, nash, steatohepatitis, or fatty liver, and then give me those abstracts. The, the real question, though, is, Manal, could they pronounce steatohepatitis? Uh, we worked on that. <laughs> they could after the... <laughs> <laughs> they eventually did. Okay, so here's the second question. This is my version of Big Dent for you. Without quite putting it that way, the process of getting the 475 articles highlighted by your kids or posted into that 30-minute talk, to some degree, has to be about the question, where was the dent, right? It's what matters. But some of what matters is how much do I have to get in, and part of some of what matters is, okay, what mattered most? So how did you address that? Well, you know, as, as I was going through those abstracts, particularly as it pertained to the therapeutic landscape, and I commend Stephen and everyone else who really took the podium on many, many different fronts in that regard, particularly with early phase 2A and 2B trials. What really put a dent in it for me and, and how I framed the talk the way I did is looking at the early phase trials that show early evidence of efficacy. It was somewhat surreal for me when I got to pivotal studies that ultimately failed. I chose, and it was a very hard decision for me to make, to present the top-line data for the Alpine trial, Falcon 1 and 2, the tandem study, because for all practical purposes, you know, the proof of concept, the early phase trials, the mechanistic principles behind these compounds, we should have seen a signal. We should have seen some outcome results. And it was somewhat surreal that they failed on the primary outcome of how we've defined this disease, a histologic definition. But yet, so many other surrogate markers of disease activity dropped across all these trials that, quote, failed. I put that front and center because I think it framed the rest of my talk, which was really to put into context that this meeting was so robust, and I hope all the regulatory agencies were listening, and brought forward the non-invasive approaches to not only diagnosing, but really risk stratifying and more importantly, defining outcomes. And whether those platforms are going to be AI-based platforms for better interpretation, of histology, and it was really amazing to see. I can't recall the first author, it might have been Moises, who, for which the light microscopy was deemed to be unchanged, but AI platforms and pathology was able to stratify that unchanged sector into a progressor or a non-progressor. The pathologist was really good and concordant with AI platforms when there was clear progression or regression, but every time they called it no change, their AI picked up subtleties that weren't otherwise seen. And now we have non-invasive of markers that are leading us towards removal of the biopsy altogether to predicting a clinically meaningful outcome, whether that be cardiovascular or hepatocellular carcinoma or decompensation or death even. And we need to move ourselves away from, as, as Stephen 
so sharply said, you know, the sharp endpoint, which is so blunt and nondescript. And as I was entangled in all these abstracts, I wanted to deliver a message. Look how far we've come, but look how much we are failing and we need to reframe our approach. We need to rethink about how we're defining our endpoints. We need to look outside and beyond the biopsy to more sensitive surrogates to define such endpoints, or we're going to potentially set ourselves up for more failures unless we learn from past history and capitalize on the very robust platforms, technologies, and innovative science that we saw brought forward here when it came to genomics, proteomics, and modeling approaches to optimizing the area under the receiver-operator curve for performance of imaging coupled with score or surrogate biomarkers as predictors of outcomes. But now, what's interesting is that Stephen made a similar kind of comment last night, except I don't think it presupposed a solution. At least not the way he said it last night, right? We're getting, we're getting to the precipice. Something has to give. I hope it's the biopsy. Can any of you see a realistic scenario under which it isn't the biopsy that gives? The, 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 the scenario under which that maintains primacy for another few years leaves us basically struggling as we've been? Or do you think at this point it's virtually preordained, even if you can't tell the path that that's where it's going to go? You know, the point that Manal raised is, is at the heart of, of drug development in our field here. We need something to have an accelerated approval to avoid having a drug and patients on, on trial for five or six years to measure those outpoints. And we've discussed this numerous times on the podcast, and I think Manal highlighted it with her NASH debrief here, that albeit there is effects that we can measure that are biological plausible and pathophysiologically relevant to the patient, we're not meeting the barrier the regulators have set to get a drug approved. Now, what would be the best solution? I think we're struggling with that, but we're seeing good advances. And that's what Stephen mentioned with his comment on really improvement in, in, in NITs and combinations of these. So I think it's a dialogue. And something I was going to say that I also noticed at this meeting is that the regulators were right there. And there's a number of these think tanks where both Frank and Ania or Laura Dimmick also showed up and, and talked and discussed. So I think this is really getting us all together and finding a solution for the best of our patients. The simplest way, whether or not this is feasible or not, I don't know. The simplest way to get to an NIT would be to capitalize on the work already done by many with MR elastography. So just follow my logic. If we know that a one-stage improvement in fibrosis is linked to improvement in outcome, as recently published in Hepatology, off work that Arun Sanyal was the first author on and presented at last year's meeting of AASLD, if we know that, and we also know that MRE is linked to outcomes, as was presented at this meeting in a late breaker, as was published by Lena Allen and Mesa Nareedin already in two different separate independent cohorts. Now we have three cohorts showing this association. It seems like all we're missing is what magnitude of effect change from MRE is linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis. And we have the data today to answer that question. That comes from one of the phase three trials that's underway right now, where MRE is tagged to biopsy at baseline and will be tagged to biopsy at the end of treatment. A, if the premise is that the drug is effective on fibrosis and you're able to show one-stage improvement, what does that number need to be for MRE? And when you've got a thousand patients where that's done in prospectively, that's 
pretty powerful data that could be presented to the regulatory authorities to say this change is linked to a one-stage improvement in fibrosis and therefore should count as a surrogate, just like fibrosis improvement of one stage does. Now, that to me would account for reaching a surrogate approvable endpoint. You would still want to follow those patients long-term, but can't that be done now with MR elastography rather than biopsy? You're assuming that the biopsy is the gold standard then, because we've already seen that there's some poor even agreement on at times what a one-stage improvement in fibrosis is across different reviewers. So it gets to the point of validating a surrogate marker against histology when histology in and of itself is a poor surrogate. And I've struggled with this rationale. So if you're validating something that's better than a poor surrogate, then you're only making it poor as opposed to using it as a standalone, independent predictor of an outcome. Manal, that'll come. That'll come with time. I'm just thinking in the short term, how do we bridge that to become acceptable? We would need to do it where we have consensus, probably against artificial platforms for interpretation of the histology for which we have more optimal sensitivity in fibrosis measures and use that by which to validate the MRI. That's a good point. We actually have that data now from Histoindex. 16.94% improvement in collagen links to a one-stage improvement on an ordinal semi-quantitative scale. That's unpublished data, but that's data that's actually out in the domain and can be spoken about. You know, if you wanted to go that way again, I think at the end of the day, what we need to do is as this graph groundswell builds about the variability that exists with biopsy and concomitantly and in parallel, the groundswell is building for some of these NITs is that it's time. And we've talked about this through the liver forum. We talked about it through the Nash SIG. We've talked about it through summit. We've talked about it through other consortium about bringing to, we talked about it at NASHTAG and we will have a fireside chat with the regulators, with key opinion leaders, with industry representatives at NASHTAG, where the whole idea about this is to show the data with NITs, show the issue with histopathology, ordinal scale, semi-quantitative interpretation, and then see if we can reach a common ground on what it takes to achieve replacement of histology with an NIT for you know, conditional approval. Because I think we've got the outcome piece in the works. It's just that initial piece that we need a little bit more data on. I get asked all the time, well, what, what percent change in MRE is linked to improvement? And we can speak to 15% worsening in MRE is linked to worsening of disease, just like we can with FibroScan. And we can with ELF. And we can with Pro-C3. But we don't really have that magnitude of effect change yet. And the problem is... Not enough sponsors are doing NITs in phase 2B linked to histology. We just don't have that data set. And then when we look to phase 3s, we didn't get it with Regenerate. We didn't get it with Resolve It. We didn't get it with Aurora. We're kind of now falling back to Madrigal and the Maestro Nash trial to say, give me what you got. You got a thousand patients with MRE and ELF and Pro-C3 and a combination of these that are paired to histology. And if the drug actually meets its endpoint, now we can begin to do some of these post hoc analyses and add fuel to the fire to go to the regulators and say, okay, we got it. Now let's at least accept it as a surrogate 
we'll still need to do the long-term outcome measure. We reduce the variability of what these endpoints are right now that are potentially inadvertently killing drug development, as you mentioned last night with aldeferment. I mean, we all think that drug works, but you know, we get we get one read with one milligram. It's the way that statistical analysis was done with MCP mod statistics. You had to look for a dose response relationship in fibrosis. It wasn't there, so the study was killed. Well, it makes you wonder if we need to change our approach, understanding where the science is in trial design. Maybe it's time for us to rethink how we're even designing the trials that we are bringing to FDA and integrating surrogates, especially these composite surrogates, MEFib, the mass test, the FAST test, as primary outcomes to inform a secondary outcome of histology for which we understand that there is less reproducibility. You know, ultimately, FDA will render INDs for protocols that are defendable in their approach and and for which drugs are safe. Maybe we who are generating and weighing in on trial design from the onset should think about designing such trials with surrogates we believe and have evidence to defend in predicting such outcomes and for which we understand better and and in a more refined nature the delta change that can be seen that is reproducible. You're an Ian, Louise, anything to add to all this? We can keep rolling on this subject or, or you so, Roger, I think there are a couple of points that I would make. The first is, in some ways, Falcon is a lesson to the FDA about the importance of biopsy, because I think BMS were quite keen to try and go from 2A straight into 3 when they got the positive results. Um, but the FDA said, no, you have to do a biopsy controlled 2B, and here we go, drug doesn't work. And that saved lots of patients from being exposed to a drug that doesn't work, lots of cost in drug development. And that the FDA might interpret as being a success of their policy. The second point is, I think, when I've heard heard Frank and Anya speak, he has been very clear that they're prepared to look at data, but that they want to see surrogates that are probably better than biopsy. I think that the continuous measures that we're talking about probably are, but about predicting surrogate outcomes of improvement. I honestly don't see the FDA changing their stance about a subpart H approval other than biopsy at the moment. And I think what we have to hope is that we get a positive trial quickly that's widely positive that will allow us to validate the various non-invasive tests that are being done in parallel with biopsies in those studies, because that's what's going to get us to the end quickest. And I think that's sort of what you and Manal Stephen have both been saying. But until we've got that, I can't see the FDA moving away from biopsy, despite its limitations, because the outcome data, I don't think, are going to be good enough within the trial setting. And I agree, I think biopsy is a problem. The necessity for surrogate endpoints has had deleterious effects on drug development, I think, for both false positive outcomes, you know, where drugs have been progressed where they don't work, but also false negative outcomes and aldeferment's probably a, an example of that. I might have this all wrong, Ian, but I'm not sure it's quite as grave as that would sound. You and I actually wound up texting each other in the middle of a conversation where somebody who you would associate with a regulatory point of view, without naming names, seemed far more open to a lot of stuff than your comment would imply, and somebody else immediately, oh no, we have to say with biopsy, it's all we know. So if that's right, okay, and there have been a couple of other evidences of that, there may be some dynamic tension within that group as well over what are we comfortable with. I'm just reading tea leaves, but I've seen three or four comments in three or four places recently. Let me just, one thing I forgot to mention in this whole discussion is the believability of these NITs. The more data that we can bring to the forefront supporting a change in NIT and its inevitability 
on a positive outcome, I think the better. And it, the, the example that comes to mind is spleen volume and the work that Rohit presented with 89Bio and then even liver volume reduction that was shown with Madrigal from both the phase two study and the open label Maestro Naffold one arm, where liver volume reduction was linked to PDFF reduction. And in Rohit's paper from 89Bio, or his presentation, spleen volume reduction correlated very nicely to fat reduction inversely with platelet counts, which I think is huge. And if that data is substantiated, where you have MRE data changing, you have spleen volume size decreasing, and all that could be linked to improvement in histology, then it becomes almost too much information to ignore. I mean, if everything that we know is moving in the right direction, whether it's portis systemic shunting, whether it's liver chemistry tests, any kind of functional assessment that we can do non-invasively outside of, you know, HVPG or HEPQUANT or endocyanine green or any of these other tests that are not ready for prime time in the setting of NASH is important. At the end of the day, if, if, we, if we can't report on these large data sets in that way, then I do think it delays the replacement of biopsy with an NIT. But if we're able to bring that data to bear, we will have enough to where it would be hard to refute changing to an NIT where it's much less invasive, it's safer on the patient, and it's much less variable and gives us a better predictability of an overall outcome. If we can show that, we could pivot to an NIT much more quickly. To follow up and echo Stephen, I think it's the combination of those biological plausible NITs that potentially address different relevant aspects in the disease, diabetes, blood glucose control, lipids, physiological changes, shrinking of liver, which has impact on quality of life and pain perception potentially. You know, we have different dimensions here that we can address. We got to pick smart in each of those categories to get improvement across the board. Can I, can I just come in there? We're probably talking about two populations. If we're talking about measures of liver function, then we're talking about a cirrhosis study. We briefly talked about this on a previous episode, but in a program running a biopsy controlled non-cirrhotic study with a clinical endpoint and non-invasive test selected controlled cirrhosis study would offer you the opportunity perhaps to validate those endpoints more quickly, which is sort of along the lines of what the FDA were discussing in their webinar. So that would be the first question. The second question is in a hypothetical scenario in phase three where a drug like aldofermin, the biopsy endpoint was not positive at 48 weeks, but all of the non-invasive tests were pointing in the right direction. So MRE was improving, Fibroscan was improving, ELF was improving. Do you think that a sponsor would be minded to carry on to get to clinical endpoints in that context? Or do you think that the absence of histological improvement would be sufficient for them to stop? That gets at the trial design issue again. You know, had we designed such trials as adaptive type of trial designs for which these surrogates are in fact a go, no go towards the ultimate endpoint of histology or an outcome, uh, you know, it would be doable today, but we didn't have this insight that we have today that when we did, when we embarked on, you know, designing the trials such as Alpine 2-3 or even Falcon 1-2, who would have guessed that these surrogate markers would have performed in, with such concordance? I mean, the Alpine 2-3 study, AST dropped, ALT dropped, GGT dropped, liver fat dropped, you know, liver stiffness dropped, you know, Pro-C3 dropped, ELF dropped. I mean, wow, 
and yet it missed the primary outcome of a fibrosis improvement. That trial particularly needs to give us pause because had we known what we know today when that trial was written two or three years ago, maybe it could have been designed as a seamless type of trial design for which these surrogates could have been an interim analysis to inform what is happening with disease biology and activity such that we can move forward seamlessly to an approvable endpoint. But these trials were written in such a manner that they truncated at histology and that was the go no go and as we've seen here with alpine 2.3 it's no longer moving forward for development in non-serotic NASH. Right now I've got a couple of people in the uh, audience who are trying to figure out how to get into this conversation but let's keep going or if you want to change the topic because one of those I was going to ask was Luis started by talking about the tremendous growth in genomics and all the various omics in this meeting. I'm wondering if you believe development in those areas will have impact on this conversation as well. In the idea that goes, the more you know, the more you know, or will they continue to be seen as unrelated areas of knowledge? I think they'll all become very important. Again, just getting back to the talk I gave at the postgrad course, uh, where I had picture of a biplane, and then I had my fifth generation strike fighter. Whether you look at an NIT, or whether you look at a drug for NASH, or you look at the way that we identify at-risk patients, not only in general, but particularly identifying patients that might be better responders to a particular mechanism over another mechanism, which is where I think a lot of this polygenic risk score and everything is being developed. We're at the early stages of this. We're at the taking off for 40 seconds and falling back to the ground. Uh, we're nowhere near laser-guided munitions and targeting. And, and this is novel and it's exciting, but we have a long way to go to get there. And I can tell you the way we're going to get there the quickest is getting our first drug approved. We get our first drug approved. It's like breaking the seal. Game on. You know, money's going to flow in. Marketing is going to come to the table. Disease awareness campaigns are going to ramp up. Patients are going to understand the disease. There will be commercials on Saturday afternoon in a football game. My son will know what a drug is for NASH, not just erectile dysfunction medication. You know, we will be able to get after a lot of these questions in a much broader, bigger way than we are right now, where everybody's just kind of struggling, coming up with an idea, but not really having the funding or the ability to enroll rapidly to answer the question, to really hone in on, on the next phase of identifying the right patients for the right drug at the right time at the right price. That's all coming. But again, we got to get the first drug approved to get there. So, Stephen, um, while you were talking, someone who's been on this podcast recently, who kind of is in the guided systems business, uh, Lars Johansson of Ataros Medical, sent in a question. I'm going to invite him to join us. Uh, I'm going to hit the green button. And Lars, I think when I hit this green click sign, you should come up on this podcast. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Good night. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting late over here. I'm in the same time zone as Jiren, I guess. So, no, I, I just had a question, Stephen. I, when you mentioned the spleen volume and also relating, I think also someone else comment on the AI approach on the data from the biopsies. So, the first, I think, was related to, because there is so much data collected on liver imaging. And in any of those trials where you have PDFFs collected, you can reanalyze the spleen volumes from positive trials, from negative trials. It's actually quite simple to do. So I just think that's something I would encourage people to think of and go back and do. Because like we saw in the, in the 89 bio trial, if you have long-standing cirrhosis, that may not work. But in earlier F2, F3 populations, where you still have dynamic plasticity in the spleen, I think it is actually a good biomarker 
or reduced portal pressure and, and uh, that you're doing something good to the patient. The other thing I wanted to comment on was on the AI uh, for biopsies. I mean, we haven't really been doing that in the trials for the imaging data, but it's very similar. There are things in those images that you don't see. So just we do as we do it with biopsies, I think we should go back and do that as well with the, some of the imaging data and, and reanalyze those. Because there is obviously so much outcome data now, and there is so much information that we haven't used. First of all, that's very good insight, Lars. We have this huge body of data that everybody's stovepiped. And we've talked about for years looking at, you know, our placebo groups and putting them all together across cohorts, Manal and Yorn. I think we talked about that at the Liver Forum like three years ago and haven't done that. And now we have all this imaging data where we could easily go back in mine. I mean, Yorn, I'm just thinking about you grab Sophie and go back and look at all the data that we've collected over the past three years with all the trials. And I'm sure we could get sponsors to de-identify that information and allow us to look at things like spleen volume relative to response to therapy histopathologically. I mean, Lars, you just made me think it's unfortunate that the easel abstract deadline is like days away because otherwise that would have been a great opportunity to to mine for that. Thanks for coming on, Lars. Good to see you. The point is then, of course, uh, this is interesting. It's emerging. The fallback maybe is now we're trying to predict liver health based on the associated spleen and the changes in blood flow. There are many aspects that we have to consider in this. And while I fully agree with you that we have to deepen our understanding of the pathophysiology and how this feeds in, we got to also keep the focus and see, you know, what's the best target to get that potential drug approved. And here we're stuck with the biopsy for numerous reasons, as we discussed before. But I agree with your point that we have to look at that to better understand pathophysiology. And, and, and maybe we'll see different patient types, patients that then do respond, but the others not. So maybe this is an aspect of subsegmentations of the patients. Yes, I agree. I, I I think my comment was more like it's a shame if we don't use the data that has been collected and really try to get the most out of it. But I agree. And I, I mean, like we've seen in this meeting, the imaging and, and the NITs and, and the, the combination of them, like you said before, Stephen, is really coming on. And I think we will see a lot more in the next year. One other comment I had was just, I mean, because we want to see that the change in biomarker predicts the change in disease. My only question or fear here, I mean, having worked in Athro for many years in Athro sclerosis is like if you take LDL and athro, we know that LDL was approved as a surrogate for statins, but not necessarily for any drug classes. So there will only be so many statins. Is there a risk that those biomarkers could have the same that they will only be approved for a specific mode of action? Or do you think that you would have things that would be so wide that you, they could be approved for any NAS drug? I think there will be NITs that are agnostic to mechanism, and there will be NITs that are specific to mechanism. We've seen the latter happen already with PDFF. I haven't seen that yet with ALT. I haven't seen it yet with MR elastography, and I haven't seen it yet with multiparametric MR or ELF. Now, ELF obviously is more of a fibrosis biomarker, so if your drug is more of metabolic, let's say a GLP-1, we wouldn't necessarily expect ELF to change in a short period of time, but we would expect PDFF to change, likely CT1, so maybe those are two parameters to look at there. But like I said, it's early days, but we are beginning to recognize that there are some, unfortunately, that are mechanism-specific. Minal, go ahead. I agree with Stephen. I think we're going to see both. There are biomarkers that are going to be agnostic 
and some that are going to be potentially very specific for a unique drug class. The ratio, for example, of T3 to reverse T3 maybe for or sex hormone binding globulin or anything that could define an outcome of a unique target engagement that could be modeled in a predictor of treatment response. So I think we'll have both, but the current biomarkers that are more agnostic are the ones that are currently on the table because the larger trials that refine these predictors to a drug-specific endpoint, we haven't crossed that threshold yet. All right. Well, thanks a lot for uh, having me on and uh, good luck. It's exciting to listen to you guys. Well, Lars, thank you and thanks for joining us. And to everyone else who's in the chat room now, if you have another question about what we're talking about, don't be shy. You can repeat that process. We can actually get two in at once if we had to. All right. So one of the things that strikes me funny is that we said at the beginning of the first session of this meeting on Sunday night that there was a tremendous amount about non-invasives in this meeting that really mattered, and then proceeded to spend the next two days talking about lots of things that happened in the meeting, but nothing about non-invasive testing. So now it seems like we're kind of making up for it, which is a good thing. What other major points about the meeting, other places in the making a dent question, do we think are worthy of our time? I think what came out at the meeting, and is an extension to what Louise has already said, is the heavy impact on genomics and genetics. Not only with the VA Million Veterans Project, which was a huge, huge sample size to get, you know, GWAS data from veterans that really uncovered some of the genes we do know play a role in the, in the pathobiology, such as PNPLA3 and TMF6, but others that are unknown. And I think analyzing this very robust data set further will help us tease out some of the heterogeneity that exists in the disease. But there was also single cell RNA-seq data presented that utilized an animal model to look at liver injury repair and unique pathways, particularly hedgehog signaling, that then translated that data into human RNA sequencing data and was able to define fibrogenic pathways in a dose-dependent response. And I think we will lean on single-cell RNA-seq data. We will lean on large population genomics and genetics to take this very heterogeneous cohort of patients and further stratify them into subgroup A, B, C, D, and E, and then tailor our therapeutics accordingly. Right now, we're throwing very promising drugs at a collage of colors in a population where we're defining under one umbrella uh, and we're not matching accordingly the optimal drugs to the right patients. It's like one size fits all. In the future years, we're going to see that becoming more refined. Drug A fits patient A, drug B fits patient B, and we'll see these treatment responses go from 40% at large to maybe 70, 80, or 90% because we're better in targeting the right therapies to the right phenotype of patient. One of the reasons that I raised it at the beginning and then connected it to the trials was Yaron Rotman did a really good session on Friday about genomics and he basically put it into the practical world. Is it good for screening a patient? Is it good for diagnosing? Is it good for X, Y, and Z? But what he came up with was it probably wasn't a place for early diagnostics and things like that, but it was for picking out patients in clinical trials and the more difficult to locate, but also in where it showed very strong worth for him was in the picking out patients who were going to get HCC and cirrhosis in that way. And then Elizabeth Speliotti's did a very good session Monday whereby they were looking at the polygenetics of patients' diets and who responded to what diet and in which way and you could pick out the different patients. And we've talked a lot on here about the fast responders, the ones in the placebo arms that are going to respond against the ones who don't and whether or not going back 
to some of these drugs like aldofermin or I did the Jamie Bosch article yesterday that Stephen's on there was 2,000 patients in that those drugs failed looking back to see whether or not did they fail or were they enriched with the wrong type of people who were going to respond more to diets and whether or not looking retrospectively again something on the same theme as earlier mining the data that we've got to see whether or not these drugs work well in certain individuals. Is that where the strength lies retrospectively, I suppose, going forward? Yeah, you bring up a great point. I mean, just thinking about what you said and reflecting on some of the trials we've done, you know, diabetics proportionately have more NASH than others. Diabetics proportionately have more ballooning than others. Diabetics traditionally don't resolve ballooning as well as others when we use our treatments that we currently have been studying. So that's kind of the paradox. It's the exact patient we want to study, but we're measuring something that's very challenging to show in a relatively short period of time resolution in. And you know, it's not just partial resolution. You don't get partial credit for taking a ballooning of two and making it one, taking clusters of balloon cells and getting it all the way down to one. You still are a failure. And I think that's where we have to get better at. But but to, to your point, we inevitably realize that that situation exists. This is a very heterogeneous disease, multiple different drivers, multiple different genetic influences, microbiome influences, what we haven't even talked about on the podcast, the data that's come out relative to that. And there's a growing body of literature to suggest that there are just way too many variables impacting an individual patient with NASH to really think that one side fits all. Scott Friedman had a great discussion with Brent Tetry yesterday on Meet the Professor Hour on Fibrosis, where Scott mentioned the studies underway now at the NIH, where the scientists are actually going out around Maryland and picking up these animals and studying them in the lab, and they have native microbiome. You know, they're not raised in a mouse house and fed the same thing and have generally the same microbiome. These are wild type that have widely disparate microbiomes. And Brent Tetry made the comment, it's interesting because they're probably running around eating the fast food that's been left behind. That's actually probably a better population to study. And Scott's comment was, yes, I remember a picture of a rat walking away with a piece of pizza in New York City. And that's just kind of how the conversation went. But the point was, there's so many variables impacting this disease that to think that we could use one size to fit all is probably, well, we've known that's that's really not the way to go. The issue is we have to get something across the finish line first, and then we can begin to to whittle away at these subpopulations. But to your point, that is exactly the way we need to be approaching this once we score the first touchdown, you know. And the point is the drug is going to be actually quite robust if it elevates above all these thresholds and all these problems. The discussion with Brent and Scott and I followed it, it really came back to also preclinical data and which drug should actually go into the clinical trial, uh, Scott made a good comment that you need to show an effect in animal models, but it will not tell you whether your drug works in humans. And that comes back to what you said, Stephen. It's just a complex disease. But, you know, you're on the OLR, not to trivialize, but I made the comment about Nixon and cancer 50 years ago. If we applied to cancer the standards that we're applying here, nothing would ever have gotten approved. In fact, if we applied those standards to breast cancer or colorectal, it would have been tough to get anything approved because the complexity of the disease is just far beyond what those kinds of blunt instruments are capable of. Of assessing. The good point is we don't have the time to 
a progression measure here, or could say is this is a disease kept in remission. And Manalis said that. Why don't we keep it stable? So what do we measure? It's a semi-quantitative fibrosis stage. No, we need that MRE that needs to be stable, that has a more dynamic range where it can see minor effects. And it all comes back down to uh, being strung to a semi-quantitative measure of a small piece of the liver. Yeah, and just fast forward that thought, Jorn. Imagine the day where MRE replaces a liver biopsy as a surrogate, and now drugs are approved on a change in MRE. And we only have 300 MREs around the world, Mo- many of those in academic centers, hardly any in clinical practices. So now we're going to need to have some tool to identify those patients' responsiveness to therapy. <laughs> it kind of one thing begets another as we develop this. But I do think that's another thing we've got to keep in mind is the availability of these tests for their applicability in real-world settings once drugs are approved. The good news is if you go two generations forward, not that we're going to do that, but if MRE winds up being the index and it's too expensive to do as widely as you'd like, someone will solve that eventually. That doesn't feel like an insolvable problem. It just doesn't feel like until now it's been a commercially important problem. No, no, I, I agree. It just got me thinking about, okay, well, if we get to that point, that'll be a good problem to have, I guess, if we, at least for those of us over the age of 50. I was going to say, or you're running around on the entrepreneurial side of your table and going, okay, now how do I help get this done? But that's a different question. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour, which is usually when we start to wrap up. I'd like to ask before we do a formal final question, is there anything about this meeting that struck any of you that we haven't hit on in the last 75 minutes that you want to make sure we talk about before we all go home today? Precision medicine was hot and heavy at this meeting, which is exciting. But Manal, the common theme of this entire last 75 minutes has been data. Everything we're talking about actually is about an improvement to gather and process data and make sense out of it. If you didn't have the data collection tools that we have and the data modeling capabilities that have been rendered so inexpensive, none of this would happen. But if you think about it, the way we're talking about non-invasive testing, genomics, precision medicine, all that winds up being about improving data capabilities. It just struck me when you said that. Hardly a novel idea. But And yeah, I agree with you. I agree. Now, going back going back to the Scott Freeman Brent Tetry talk, I totally agree with you. So we're going to be bold. We're going to crystal ball. What's going to be the biggest story coming out of uh, the 2022 liver meeting? That's my closing question. I think it'll be the phase three results. Yeah, I think it'll be the phase three results from Madrigal, from Intercept Regenerate, from Resolve It. It'll be certainly more data mining on large data sets for which we have genomics and omics data, proteomics, metabolomics, and optimizing the existing surrogates to perform even better with exquisite precision and reliability. I'm also going to make a prediction. I think that somebody, whether it's Scott Friedman, one of his mentees, or Neil Hendricks, or his group, somebody will use single cell transcriptomics to tell us exactly which hepatocytes and which stellate cells are likely to respond to therapeutic intervention and which ones won't. Because it struck me at a prior meeting, and we talked about it on this podcast, that you can have a drug that shuts down a stellate cell, but if the stellate cell doesn't want to shut down through epigenomics or some other factor, it may not. And those types of analyses will gain traction in 2022. And I bet you there'll be some pretty exciting abstracts presented relative to hepatocytes, probably Cupra cells and stellate cells at the meeting next year. That was kind of my question. I think we're within a year of that. Look, Lars was the first person who brought to this podcast the idea that the problem is we keep looking for what shouldn't be in the liver instead of what should be. Scott talked about the same thing the following week. So yeah, if we can get there in a year, I think that might even wind up being more compelling than the drugs, unless Madrigal hits it far enough out of the park that everybody knows it's going to get approved. It's compared to that kind of hold your breath and hope thing that people have. Yeah, and to Manal's point, don't forget about uh, a beta-colic acid. Yeah. 
Roger, what I think is going to prevail here is really the momentum we have between uh, clinical scientists, basic scientists, patient representatives, advocacy, the regulators being at, at, the, at our meetings. They want to know what we think, what, what we're working on. So everybody is at the table and ready to get this to a finish for the best of our patients. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go for the phase three results because for all of the reasons that we've talked about today, that's probably what's going to make the biggest difference in the short term because with a drug that meets an approvable endpoint, really meets it with a good safety profile, then that's really going to provide a massive impetus to all of the other things that we've talked about. And although the science, particularly that Neil Henderson talked about, you know, is exciting, the pace of the development in that will probably not get us there next year, but we'll see the treatment come sooner than that. Having seen the amount of patient and advocate input, this Arzold, which has been way, way, way above what's been there previously or an easel, it's the fact that that's going to grow. I would strongly suspect that 2022 will probably be a hybrid meeting because this format does allow it to reach a greater audience which is a positive but it will be nice to be back in person the patient advocacy the connection with the real world there was a lot of sessions on how we can make clinics better advanced nurse practitioners the way it's going and its application into the real world there is such a greater depth of connection in the meeting this time than there was last time or that any I've been to in person on that which was really encouraging both Easel and Arsels are pushing that forward with the likes of Donna really dragging them forward but we'll see more of that patients drive change they're very hot on the FDA at the moment where if we can remove biopsy and patients are key to that that's for me a good progress into 2022. I hope we don't lose the virtual platform ever because we are reaching far more people and there's one thing we can do on the virtual platform which we can't do in person is press replay so I could attend more parallel sessions than I ever could in person and really get more out of the liver meeting because I can go back and listen to a session that I couldn't otherwise have attended because I was in a different session and take a lot more in from the liver meeting because of the virtual nature of it than I would have been able to even in person. Okay, so for those who didn't see it, I was applauding silently when I said that. I've set aside on my calendar an hour a day every day for the next month to take the postgraduate course and think about it. And that's before you get to everything else, right? So I, I, I don't think that's a risk, though. I, I can't imagine that we would go away from the virtual platform. I lack imagination. People do things that are worse than I can imagine all the time. But that's such a benefit to so many that I just can't see it. I think we'll do both. I think we'll take the advantages of virtual and blend them with the advantages of being in person. And just fast forwarding to April in London, I can't wait to be in person to have Louise show us around London, you know, maybe open house. And we can still do the virtual when we get back home, pick up on what we missed. But uh, we get to be together in person. And Ian, you'll be able to hopefully just drive down, right? It's not too far from where you're at. No, very close. Just just a couple of hundred miles. Oh, yeah. My hope my hope for Louise is the Tottenham and Palace are both at home that weekend and not playing at the same time and not interfering with anything in the meeting we care about. That would be brilliant. But to Stephen's point, as long as he gives me the recipe for deep fried turkey, I'll buy the ingredients, but you're on the barbecue. Hey, it's coming up. It's coming up. You got to remember to get your injector, though. You've got to inject that bad boy. And then ideally throw a can of your favorite beer up in the middle of that thing when you deep fry it. I'll show you the text, the blend of the Mississippi, Texas way to deep fry a turkey. Can I say that sounds like a 
Texan recipe. So the next time we're all in the same place, Dr. Harrison has volunteered to deep fry enough turkey for all of our regular uh, panelists. And one of our visitors in the audience said, Nash and Thanksgiving tips. This is a great session. I want to close where we spent a lot of time the last two days, really, in part because Jeff McIntyre was here, is on the patient. So I take Jorn's point, and Louise's. this all happens against the backdrop of the patient-focused drug development meeting two weeks ago, where a whole bunch of patient advocates looked at FDA and said, don't worry about our safety, get us a drug. We're, we're grown-ups, we understand the safety issues, we, we just need something that we can use and believe in. And Donna's comment walking away was that if they had that session two years ago, OCA would have been approved. No, she literally, we'll have a drug by now, but that had to be OCA because it couldn't have been Ella. And uh, Terry Milton last week was quoting Joe Turner as having texted that if he'd known then what he knows now, there's things he would have done differently. So on the one side, the science is getting a lot better, and on the other side, the patients are getting a lot louder. I, I can't think of a better combination to move this field forward. One combination to add to that, yeah. that the NAFLD and NASH driver is also not good for the planet. So actually, it can be sustainable. We can change it. So by targeting your patients with the forum, and if we get on the sustainability part as well, we've got three really good levers. We'll come back to this because there are a lot of things about that. Scott Friedman's comment that this is a disease of environmental factors because you don't get an epidemic in a body that's been fundamentally the same genes for thousands of years, particularly not when diets are changing as rapidly as they are in other factors in the environment. On this note, I, w- I would suggest Matthew Cave, who presented a phenomenal talk on environmental pollutants and exposures to come on to the show. I, I, t- I agree. Louise and I were talking one of the two previous nights, Manal, about both being gobsmacked by going to a meeting and hearing that talk that we didn't expect and just going, yikes, yikes being the technical term. Look, I want to thank everyone. It's been, it, Stephen, the re- representation of the globe was? It's just the environmental issue, right? The carbon footprint, all that. Well, it all comes together. At any rate, listen, I want to first of all award Louise some kind of most valuable player award for doing this three days in a row and twice at two in the morning. And uh, Manal, a different kind of most valuable player award for putting that fantastic talk together yesterday. I had a lot of help from my friends, including Stephen and others who were gracious enough to share their notes, thoughts, and PowerPoint presentations. So thank you. Stephen, you're an Ian. Always great to have you folks around. I will come back and do business section a little bit later. We will be back next week. What we thought we were going to do next week was talk about the global NAFL consensus document with Jeff Lazarus has been put off a week. So we have to figure out what we're going to do next week, but it's Thanksgiving. We have to come back with something. Maybe we'll do Nash healthy uh, cooking tips for an hour and a half. Or Nash not so healthy cook. What not to consider except for one day out of the year. No, Stephen, I think what we'll do is turn it into a debate and we'll get a couple of vegans in to talk about one way to look at it, you to look at another, and then we'll take a vote at the end. Yeah, you don't want to eat at my house if you're Nash conscious. Not that day. Not that day. And, and we, could, we could throw in some pecan pie, some pumpkin pie, some chocolate pie, some Mississippi mud pie. I mean, you know, we could really get it going. So when's the invitation to come over for Thanksgiving I, dinner, Stephen? Well, anytime. But of course, as you know, being the boss of your house, I've got to run that by my boss. And, you know, that's a whole different story. With that note, we will leave everybody drooling and virtuous at the same time. Thanks to everyone. Uh, we'll be back next week. As I say, I'm not quite sure what we're doing yet, because I know what we're doing in two weeks. In fact, I know what we're doing for the next month. A lot of great stuff, including Jeff Lazarus, including a Nash preview session, and including having Ali, you pronounce the Miriam from Cleveland Clinic on to talk about the Splendor study, which I'm very excited about. That's coming the third week in December. So thank you, everybody. If you're in the States, well, we would actually, we'll talk to you again before Thanksgiving. Thanks, guys. Please, you learn, Ian, Great seeing you guys. Have a wonderful holiday. Have a great week. Stay safe. Surf on. Bye-bye now. Welcome to today's episode 57 business section. 
Hi, listeners and downloaders. It's Wednesday morning, one day after the end of ASLD, or as they call it, the Digital Liver Meeting. We finished recording our third session in less than three days and our second in less than 24 hours yesterday afternoon. It was an amazing experience, three amazing episodes, and I feel indescribably fortunate to find my way to this community and this role. One takeaway from this past week, live audiences are here to stay. These past three episodes have convinced me of the value of having live audience at our podcast. Our friend Lars Johansson from Ontario's Medical joined us today with a question and an observation and became part of the podcast for perhaps 10 minutes. Others in the audience sent in questions they wanted us to ask, provided tips on background noise, and when they could not see me clearly on screen, and provided a nice karmic energy just because we knew you were out there. It turns out this live audience piece is not too challenging for us to do, and audience members, heck, you and your colleagues, report liking it. So starting with our next episode, we will make invitations to the audience available for each episode of Surfing Nash from here on out. To make this work, we'll need your email address every week you want to attend so we can send you a link. Check LinkedIn and Twitter for a post and link to request your invitation coming Friday and in subsequent weeks. Now that ASLD is over, what's next for programming? Simple answer, some great stuff. We're not certain what's coming next week because our original topic for next week, the Global NAVL Consensus Statement with Jeff Lazarus, Jorn Schottenberg, and hopefully a first-time surfer, has been pushed back one week to a November 29th recording and December 1st drop. The week after that, we will preview Nash Day with Stephen, Jorn, and one other guest surfer to be named. The week after that, our last group session of the year will have lead author Ali Amirian, co-author Naeem Al-Khoury, join the regulars to discuss the groundbreaking Splendor study, which is, I believe, the first paper to demonstrate the weight loss can reverse cirrhosis. Like last year, the end of the year will be filled with a set of individual interviews with some of the sheer surfers, including a healthy patient contingent and possibly some of our listeners. We come back in January with Nash Tag, and that's plenty for now. Tell Roger what you would like to see in season three. Our Ahem seasons each reflect the calendar year, not a season. So season three starts the week of Nashtag at the beginning of 2022. What would you like to see added, subtracted, or changed? New music? New features? New kinds of topics to cover? New sections for each week's podcast? Please let us know. As I say, live audience will be one thing. We'll see about the rest. If you have suggestions, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com or contact me directly at roger.green at hepdynamics.com or post publicly in LinkedIn or post publicly in Twitter or do all the We'll get your message. The buzz in the vault. Hi, first the buzz. This is the third week in which we have surpassed 1,000 downloads. That never happened before October 12th. It's now happened three times in the last five weeks and was probably on track to do that even if we did not have the two episodes from AASLD. In terms of the vault, this week's vault report starts with the Paris Nash Imaging Conversation 46.2, which gained another 80 downloads last week to sit at 495 as of 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday. In the real oldies category, our very first episode, Stephen talking about clinical trials under COVID, gained a handful of users last week. As to Season 1, Episode 43, our year-end wrap-up on drugs, along with the first two conversations from that set, Vlad Ratsayu talking about boiling hot Nash drug development and the growth of non-invasive testing, followed by Mazen Nureddin discussing the shortfalls of biopsy and opportunities for NITs. Earlier this year, Episode 41, our discussion with Ken Kusi about the multidisciplinary NAFL care model grew over 5% last week, as did each of its conversations. Recently, everything has been growing nicely. Just look on the website at everything 
anything from the full episode 46 to today and know that at least a half a dozen people picked up that offering and every conversation in it last week. Big week, as I say. And with that, I want to finish by thanking everyone who made our ASLD coverage possible, starting with Louise and our engineer, Mike Wilson, who for different reasons were up at all kinds of hours of the night making this happen. Jeff McIntyre for representing GLI and more broadly patients and their advocates so well. The rest of our key opinion leaders, Manal and her speech, Stephen and his tech challenges, and then Scott Friedman, Michelle Long, Naeem al Michael Charlton, Mazen Nureddin, Ian Rowe, and Jorn Schottenberg, as well as the rest of our team. Eric Rounds, who's been driving social media daily, and Steve Bennon, who helps make this entire thing make sense structurally. I want to thank you, our listeners, who provide energy and inspiration for us to do this every day, every week, and this week, three days in a row. Usually, you come last. But tonight, I want to reserve last for the woman Mazen Nureddin called, and I quote, our beloved Donna. Donna Cryer, you inspire all of us daily. If you felt a large tectonic shift towards patient engagement this week, own a large piece of it for you and for your team. We'll be back next week with our pre-Thanksgiving episode. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.